Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, the only podcast with an EU blue flag for high standards of cleanliness and hygiene. Every week we gather together our bin bags and rubber gauntlets to clean off all the broken promises, toxic arguments and spilled opinions from Brexit Beach. My name's Dorian Linsky and among the items washing up on the beach this week we have one man pro-Brexit groundswell, Professor Patrick Minford, (laughs) promises an astonishing economic boost of £135 billion a year to Britain once we get out from underneath the Brussels jackboot. How credible is that figure and is there a bus long enough to fit it on? Meanwhile, could Britain square the circle of leaving the EU without wrecking its economy by submitting to the jurisdiction of the European Free Trade Area Court? What is the EFTA Court anyway, and will Brexit Britain ever again accept something with European in its name that isn't a song contest or a football tournament? (laughs) Plus, at the end of the show, we'll be answering some of your questions with the return of Ask Romaniacs. So let's meet the panel. We're delighted to have one of our regulars back on the show. Naomi Smith is a seasoned Europhile campaigner a former Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate and chair of the Social Liberal Foundation. And she's on Twitter as Pimlicat. Hello, Naomi. How are you? Feeling rich because I haven't been abroad. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet having my holiday this summer. So, yeah, I'm feeling a bit flusher than the rest of you lot, probably. <laughs> <laughs> One of your specialist subjects is housing, especially in London. We've been conditioned to think houses are a, a safe bet. Based on Brexit, would you buy property in London or elsewhere or not at all? It's a funny one with London. You've got a housing supply issue. So London needs 50,000 homes a year every year, according to the London Plan, which is the Greater London Authority's strategic document that it works to. Uh, We build around half that, not even most years. So regardless of Brexit, we're going to continue to have a housing crisis in London. That said, prices are stagnating. The top end has certainly come down quite a lot. Probably not a great time to invest in London. If you do want to invest somewhere, I'm told that in Liverpool you can still buy a house for less than the cost of the bricks. So on that basis, it probably is a decent long-term investment uh, if you've got the sort of cash to tie up. Cool. And it would not be Romaniacs without Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Uh, Very well. Thank you. And we noticed in the pub after last week's podcast you had a decent haul of comic books from Gosh Comics. Uh, What lessons... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for Remainers, does the Marvel Universe hold? Uh, that's a very hard thing to answer. You know, the weird thing is that we, we record this just around the corner from that comic shop, and every time I come here to do it, like as a sort of muscle memory, I just start walking towards the comic shop. <laughs> it's only until I get to the door, I'm like, no, no, I'm not supposed to be doing that. I'm actually supposed to be recording a podcast. Um, the last time I was there, we had a conversation actually about Trump, and we were remembering that there was a period in DC Comics history when Lex Luthor became president. And actually, he was significantly less dreadful than Trump. He didn't try to assault any women. He didn't vindicate or, you know, try to sort of suggest that there was any validity to far-right politics or anything of the sort. So in total, the one thing you can, I suppose, learn from comics is the fact that Lex Luthor is far superior to the current president of the US. And the demonic presidential candidate in Electra Assassin uh, also had a certain kind of debonair charm about him. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was a deep cut. So again, <laughs> there are, I don't think there are any fictional presidents worse than the, uh, the current one. 
Okay, we're going to look at the week's Brexit news in a minute. But first, Naomi has a few gentle reminders to you, the beloved listener. Yes, if YouTube is where you do most of your listening, Romaniacs now has its own YouTube channel. We're putting each complete show up every week and we'll be experimenting with shorter snippets too. Go to YouTube, search for Romaniacs and please subscribe, hit like, click on that little bell button to get notifications because the more subscribers we get, the more YouTube will push us. Spotify users, we're on Spotify as well with a link at romaniacs.com. And for Apple users, please do subscribe via the iPhone podcast app or iTunes and leave us a nice review and star racing while you're there. It all helps to get us in front of more people and to spread the Ramoning. We've got lots of nice reviews from listeners. Previous lifelong Tory voter says that we are internet gallows humour to keep hope alive. Listening to this podcast is the highlight of my week. Thank you very much. Previously, lifelong Tory voter. I wonder who you're voting for now can't imagine it's uh, Labour either. Anyway, head over to Apple Podcasts and add your voice to the sound of the crowd. Let's start with the cream of the Brexit news. Professor Patrick Minford has announced that once we leave the EU, there will be an economic boost to Britain of £135 billion (laughs) if we unilaterally remove all trade tariffs and barriers little catch there. Minford is publishing a report called From Project Fear to Project Prosperity in the Autumn. He says that if we unilaterally drop trade barriers, we'd reap an £80 billion annual bonus and a further £40 billion for deregulating the economy. He's a big fan of neoliberal pin-up Milton Friedman, a seasoned Eurosceptic, and one of the brains behind the poll tax. So that's where he's coming from. Enthusiasm was not universal. Alison McGovern MP from Open Britain said, this is a project of economic suicide, not prosperity. So alternative title for him there. Naomi, what exactly is Minford proposing? So, effectively what he's done is to uh, leak or pre-release snippets of a report that is going to come out in the autumn, saying that according to his economic analysis, UK PLC will get a 7% GDP growth boost after what he calls a full Brexit Full, that's a new one, you know, cliff edge, hard, soft, but full. Not really sure what he means by that. But he has based his equation on four factors. So one, that we're going to be able to do all this amazing trade with the rest of the world. Plus, we're going to be freed from lots of EU regulation and have our own pragmatic regulation. So is that pragmatically sort of saying goodbye to workers' rights and all those sorts of things? Not sure. Of course, that we'll be no longer paying into the EU budget. And the fourth factor, of course, he would uh, you know, want to bring into this is immigration and not having to pay for all these unskilled or low-skilled immigrants, as he refers to them, uh, to which he says the UK taxpayer ends up paying around £3,500 per lower-skilled migrant into the economy. So I think, you know, everyone says that Economics is the only subject for which two people can win the Nobel Prize for saying an equal and opposite thing from one another. Uh, There have certainly been plenty of uh, economists lining up to slam this. But I think before we kind of go into the rebuttal of all of that, it's interesting to look a bit more deeply at who he is and who this organisation is. So he is, as Dorian said, a lifelong follower of Friedman. He's more Friedman than Friedman. He has been an apologist for Thatcherism for most of his career. Uh, he was 
special advisor to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, 1989 to 1992. You know, not really a character reference. <laughs> Probably. Um, I, read so. a bit, I read a bit of his uh, argument for why the poll tax would be a winning idea indeed, as well. Indeed, online. indeed. And he's, he's his own revisionist, actually. You know, he does, he does uh, go back and rewrite his own history quite often. So he represents this organisation, which is called Economists for Free Trade. They are from what I can tell, a group of men. Uh, there are no women on their staff or on their advisory board, but they do, of course, have Jacob Rees-Mogg on their advisory board. So, you know, in framing this, it, this is not independent, objective research. This is research peddling a very clear agenda. Well, if you look at the, the lineup, they've got a former UKIP MEP, a Telegraph columnist, and another Tory advisor from the, from the, the golden era of the early 90s. Quite. So, yes, there's been plenty of people sort of criticising them over the last few days for this position that they've put out. The National Institute for Economic and Social Research, you know, has sort of said that this is just, you know, completely flawed and out-of-date analysis of any kind of understanding of how trade works and the UK Trade and Policy Institute or some such thing that I'm getting completely wrong, but uh, people who know what they're talking about said that this is so wrong, you literally couldn't get any kind of GDP boost unless there was to be a deal that would give the UK such exemptions that it would actually require further integration than the customs union and the single market currently offers and that WTO rules wouldn't allow for that. So, you know, it does all appear to be fake news. And um, Ian, the BBC's version of this story that I saw didn't mention exactly how ultra neoliberal ideologue Minford is, implied there were a lot of economists thinking this. And I mm. wondered, is this, is this a sort of case of trying to be fair and balanced and go, well, there are economists that are for Brexit without perhaps elaborating exactly how extreme this proposal is? That's exactly right. Yeah. So the, the BBC is so lost in this world of basically ideological relativism. They're obsessed with binary opposition. And it's just, you know, here are two sides. They're going to squabble. We are a neutral referee. And it's our job to basically provide a forum for people to shout at one another. Now, that anyway is not particularly conducive to good debate. The BBC has a role of saying, well, actually, this holds more validity. This is objectively true. Or this has more support in the industry or among other experts. Again, they've fallen into their old ways now. I mean, they've been doing the same thing with climate change skeptics. Now, here we are where they, they, for a day, allowed this to take over the sort of BBC news website. This report is sort of staggering in the extent of its illiteracy, really. He does something quite extraordinary. He basically, in his calculations, discounts distance from the assessment of trade. Now, distance is one of the only things that doesn't vary when we talk about trade. The further away you are, the less trade there is. It's just as simple as that. It works in almost every scenario. For him to have done that, I mean, it just sort of takes it outside of the realm of economics into the world of sort of Disney movies. But even if you were to pursue a little bit further of, of what he's suggesting on a strategic level, he is basically saying that before we go and do free trade agreements with anyone, we're going to get rid of all of our tariffs. Now, that's just fucking mad. I mean, you'd like, you would, it's like going to a market and forcing them to take more of your money in exchange for the thing. I mean, you've gotten rid of all of your leverage. The main thing that you do in a negotiation is knock down your tariffs one by one. Then you deal with non-tariff barriers, much more complicated, much more modern. He doesn't even seem to know what they are. If you, like, let me talk about this for a little bit further because it's actually quite extraordinary when you talk to people in British industry about what's being proposed they're aghast by what's happening so let's say that you're British sugar right? 
There's two ways of getting sugar. One way is cane. And uh, some of the cane we get is, from, you know, from basically it's a sort of legacy of colonialism and it comes from outside of Europe. The other way is beet. Now, we have our own domestic sugar industry through beet that is actually very successful. And it's successful without subsidies from the EU, without subsidies from the UK. His proposition is to lower the tariffs completely. So then the market gets flooded with very, very cheap sugar. The sugar that comes from Thailand and from Brazil is heavily subsidized. So what he's doing, it's not even a free market thing. Yeah. He's basically just putting successful British businesses yeah. at the mercy of the subsidies of other countries outside mm. of Europe. Mm. It is so spectacularly stupid that the people who are most embarrassed by it are, of course, sensible levers, that radically diminishing ring of, of, of the levering front, who are absolutely aghast by what he's saying. He is truly an utter idiot of the highest magnitude. Well, there was a good Guardian long read by Stephen Metcalf about neoliberalism, which basically argues that it's a kind of religion, and it's sort of top level it's a religion masquerading as a yes. science no, that's it's, about right. yeah. it's market fundamentalism you know is, is as extreme as any other ism and these people absolutely don't care about state ownership of natural monopolies and our industries so long as it's not our state mm. you know they, they really aren't, aren't bothered about you know any other country subsidizing something you know it, it, it is crazy nonsense economics so that's him done <laughs> On to our second story. You may recall at the beginning of the EU negotiations, Brexit Secretary, or Brexcretary, David Davis, was fond of hanging tough before Brussels. He promised the row of the summer if the EU didn't agree to trade talks in parallel with the EU exit talks, then immediately folded when they said, no, we're not doing that. Now, Davis is urging a rethink. In a piece in the Sunday Times, he suggested that the EU go back to his original brilliant idea of negotiating the EU-UK relationship before we've settled the divorce bill and other withdrawal matters. This is obviously nothing to do with the fact that we're nowhere near opening trade talks. Meanwhile, the government continues to issue position papers like a drunken sailor. Ian, is David Davis starting to feel the cold hand of a Brexit essay crisis? Yeah, he is. But I mean, he's completely right in what he's proposing. I mean, any British team would be suggesting the same thing. Because once we agree the divorce bill, we lose our leverage. So it's very, very useful for us to still have the notion of money, which is one of the main things we have to offer. Remember that us leaving, we're a net contributor, right? So countries like Germany, will suddenly have to pay more. Countries like Poland are going to get less. One of the main things we can do is dangle some cash. I mean, a really good tactic in Brexit is just bribery, just throw <laughs> cash at these guys in order to get a better deal. So he's right to try and extend that into the secondary section. And he's right also that there's a logic to talking about these things all at the same time. If we, w again, it's that classic thing of, and this is why they released the Ireland and the Customs Union paper at the same moment, was you can't deal with the Irish problem, which apparently is a precondition of moving on to the second stage, without working out what your customs arrangements are. So there's no logic to it, but also strategically from a British perspective, you're doing it. So he's right to keep on bringing it up, but it doesn't matter because he doesn't have any strength in negotiation. The reason he doesn't have any strength is because the British government magnificently failed to address its weaknesses in terms of time and capacity in the build-up to negotiations. So this is all a substance of his own failures, but nevertheless, he is right in the arguments that he's making. And uh, quickly, what's in this week's position papers? I mean, obviously, everybody at home will have been pouring through them. But I can only <laughs> for, imagine the For, for those yeah. that were busy. I mean, there's stuff on goods and there's stuff on basically sort of civil recognition in legal cases, all of which is, is pretty common sense stuff if we want to keep this as close as possible. The pattern that's starting to... Uh, I'm not mentioning the EFTA... Uh, beg your pardon. It's the, the, the stuff on basically arbitration and independent tribunal that came out a couple of hours ago. Again, this is recorded Wednesday morning. Uh, Wednesday midday, sorry. Um, I'm not mentioning that because we're going to talk about it in more detail in a moment. But mm. you look at all these position papers and you basically see quite clearly you're starting to see civil servants start to impose sane, rational, evidence-based solutions on the sort of 
political madness that is being proposed by people around the cabinet table. Where that war is going, it's not clear. But there's plenty of sort of perfectly sensible suggestions here as to how you would do things in the aftermath of Brexit. There's also been one that I spotted um, around... um, what can what gets kept secret after we've divorced and we're no longer together? So Barnier had put out something, uh, and then we felt we had to retaliate with a whole other thing, which presumably is because once we're forging bilateral trade agreements with other countries, we don't want to sort of reveal our hand and have too much sensitive information out there. It's a bit like I think the equivalent of um, agreeing not to share each other's nudie pics after a breakup and not not upload them online. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, what, that that seems to be the essence of that one. There's, you can you can just see those problems swirling around that like if, if, if there was a bit in um in the irish paper where they said oh by the way we might accept uh, the same standards on agri-foods we've mentioned this last week that basically means that you would in this massive part of your economy keep exactly the same standards now at the same time all the guys around liam fox desperately want to start signing deals during the interim period with america not because they think those deals would be good they know those deals would be disastrous in that kind of time frame but because they know if they can sign up to American standards in that period, it stops the British government from signing up to European standards in the longer period. So all of this is a war under these cover of these umbrella terms to try and define what Britain will be like for the rest of our lives. And it's being done without any explicit mention of what is really being discussed and through a cabinet that are mostly trying to stab each other and secure their own ideological convictions at the same time. Finally, and most importantly, Big Ben fell silent this week and so did a heartbroken nation... (laughs) The Bell of Hearts will not bong again until 2021, by which time we may well be out of the EU. This was a gift for headline writers. We got everything from not with a bong, but with a whimper, to the classic Britain's Bell Ends. But inevitably, the Brexiteers had to put their oars in and ruin everything. Sitcom Tory Peter Bone MP said, Big Ben should bong when we come out of the EU. An escaped Beano character, Jacob Rees-Mogg, declared that it would be symbolically uplifting for it to sound out our departure from the EU as a literally ringing endorsement of democracy. Accurate use of literally there. His expensive education wasn't wasted. Fair enough, though. Big Ben does prove Britain's ability to put a massive clock up. (laughs) Interestingly, nobody seemed to give a stuff about Big Ben until the mail waded in. Ian and Amy, why is Big Ben suddenly the symbol of Britishness? Why must even inanimate objects be forced into backing Brexit? Oh, because it's like this ludicrous nostalgia of the Brexiteers that we're all being forced to, you know, be exposed to. It's part and parcel of this return to Merry England of the 1950s that, you know, they want to return to. Rees-Moggism is just like another symptom of this endless desire to put the clock back 70 years and, you know, bring back TV programmes like Dixon of Dot Green, which we're all far too young to, to, to know anything about other than having heard it from our parents. And, you know, it's also a offensive isn't it right you know a a teary Westminster falling silent not for the lives lost in Grenville Tower but for an old bell that needed a lick of paint you know it's it's pretty offensive that this much time and energy has even been sort of you know I saw an an amazing elf and safety uh, comment from somebody going that when uh, when he was in the army and he used to kind of fire machine guns whenever without, without ear protection so why couldn't the workers on Big Ben just sort of like slave away without worrying about damaging their ears? And somebody said, could you clarify that point? And he said, what? <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, did, it did seem to have brought out this grotesque parade of eccentrics and throwbacks mm. to sort of make a story out of something which, which let's face it, will be f- forgotten next week. It seems to be entirely symbolic, but not in the way that Jacob Rees-Mogg intended. I can't even, even analyse. They're just... 
It's just so stupid. I don't even know where to start. I just looked at them. They looked like they were having some kind of emotional breakdown. Yeah. Stephen Pound supposedly weeping by the clock. But then I was watching him on the video and sort of thinking, are you faking it or are you really crying? And which of those is weirder? I honestly have no idea. I'm completely baffled by what's going on. It, it feels like they've all gone completely crazy. And uh, a fun Big Ben fact. Did you know, as listener Danny Kegg told us, that HP sauce is manufactured in Holland? So every time you put proper British brown sauce <laughs> on your full English breakfast, you're literally doing the work of the EU saboteurs. <laughs> and those are your Brexit headlines. <laughs> Moving on. In these days of foundering trade negotiations and economic uncertainty, it's easy to lose sight of what's really important, which is getting out of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, which interprets European law <laughs> no matter what it costs. But you can't stay in the single market unless there's a body to adjudicate on trade and other matters. As a compromise to solve this intractable problem, it's been suggested that Britain accept the jurisdiction of the EFTA Court, that's the European Free Trade Association Court, which oversees the EU's relationship with Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein, that's a great word to say, mm. and their access to the European single market. Ian suggested we discuss the EFTA Court this week, and he promised it was less boring than it sounds. <laughs> so come on in. That, that was a lie, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're all here locked in with me and I get to talk about EFTA. Um, actually, so the position paper came out a couple of hours ago. It came out at 12 o'clock today. And because they don't want to send the single market, they're not proposing the EFTA Court, but they are proposing some kind of adjudication body, arbitration body, that would mimic what goes on in the EFTA Court. There's two kind of scenarios in which we end up in something that looks like an after court. One of them is that soft Brexit happens. Basically, the, that kind of damage limitation approach by Remainers wins. And I still think that that is probably overall, I mean, an extremely likely outcome as we face more and more of the problems coming up to the cliff edge. That kind of escape route will become more and more politically sort of attractive to people. And that will involve going into EFTA, through EFTA, signing up to the EEA agreement and coming under the EFTA court. The other way is that we just base whatever our court is on the EFTA court. And what's really interesting about this is you may have noticed Theresa May ever so subtly downgrade her promise to remove us from ECJ jurisdiction, to remove us from direct jurisdiction of the ECJ. That's quite a big change because suddenly you look at that paper today and they are saying this court satisfies that criteria. Now, this court has a very strong umbilical cord to the European Court of Justice. It has to take due account of rulings by the European Court of Justice. And the reason it does that is because the only way that you can be in anything like the single market and the only way that you could have a frictionless trade arrangement even outside of it, which isn't really possible, but the closest you could get to approximating what it is they say they want, is to have a court that lives up to the same standards that are set in the EU for the way that products and services operate. So this court, fascinating sort of body, very weird compromised body set up by countries, you know, like Norway, like Iceland, who are like us, quite small countries, who tend to have a pretty arm's length relationship with Europe, tend to be kind of uncomfortable with it, but they still want the economic advantages. It's a very fascinating body. It has a very interesting relationship with the European Court of Justice, a sort of two-way conversation that they have over law. And it's one of those areas that we're going to have to start getting to know very, very well indeed, because the chances are we're either going to end up in it or we're going to base our model on what goes on in that court. Well, I remember during the campaign last year that there were some prominent Leave campaigners uh, talking a lot about Norway and the Norway model. Yeah. Well, so I mean, Dan Hannan still technically supposedly supports this kind of stuff. And there are others as well. I mean, this is the liberal leave sort of proposition. And in fact, if, if most of those guys had kept to their convictions in that really tough year after the vote before the general election, they would have been making this case throughout. Instead, 
they fell into a sort of tribalism and they just backed the hard Brexit stuff and gave up on the convictions that they supposedly held all of their lives. But nevertheless, this is a very, very sensible outcome for us to get to. And it's one that I think Remainers should be supporting as a as their primary damage limitation option if you don't get another sort of referendum that means that we can stay inside. And what's Labour's position on all of this? <laughs> if anyone really cares, <laughs> has Keir said anything? Right, so I mean, Keir's thing, at the beginning it sounded like he was talking in legal terms. He said, we'd have to leave the EEA to join the EEA, which is technically true. You do have to do that. And by the way, you know, if we wanted to do this, we'd have to uh, apply, really. So you'd have the four EFTA members who can veto it, and then you've got the 30 signatories, the remaining 27 states in the EU, and the three, excluding Switzerland in the EFTA, who would have to say that we're okay to join the EEA. So he said, okay, so we're going to back... He sort of seemed to sort of tacitly say they were going to back that process. It's certainly true that during transition, Labour wants to have the closest possible relationship. However... Even there, their position seems to change all the time. Because at first, they were saying, well, that definitely means customs union and single market. This is away from the cameras, but speaking to journalists personally. Then you now look and you see sort of Labour shadow ministers go up, completely unable to answer whether they want to stay in the customs union. So there it's again not clear from one day to another what their position is. But by rules of their own logic and the arguments that they have made in as much as that's worth anything, they should be supporting exactly this kind of measure. The Lib Dems would obviously support it, although I think they've been... <sighs> it's been a very weird attitude today, I think, from lots of sort of Remainers and soft Brexiters and Lib Dems and, and Chukra and Mona on the other side, where they're sort of attacking the government for U-turning by suggesting these close relationships. And you just think, no, man, don't attack them for that. They're doing exactly the thing that you've been telling them to do this entire time. I, th- I thought Vince Cable has sort of welcomed the U-turn uh, even though number 10 will go, it's not a U-turn, it's not a U-turn, it's not a U-turn. They're, they're promising it, isn't it? It absolutely is a U-turn. Well, he did, but I mean, I, I felt like he was really rubbing an awful lot of noses in it while, while simultaneously saying we do actually welcome the thing that's taking place. Um, and what's, what's this phrasing that uh, Theresa May is using? It won't have direct jurisdiction. Surely it's binary. A court either has jurisdiction or it doesn't. Um, no, it's, it's really interesting, actually. Well, it's interesting if you're completely emotionally and psychologically damaged and find legal constitutional law fascinating. And apparently that's me now. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is the thing. So the European Court of Justice has supremacy over British law because you sign up to that treaty for the European Union and that says the EU law takes precedence over British law. EFTA is not like that. EFTA's different. EFTA's a treaty. Sorry, the EEA is a treaty signed between EFTA and the EU. And what that court does is it adjudicates on the treaty. So it doesn't have supremacy. British law would still be supreme. And yet, in actual fact, what we find is a very similar scenario. You're following single market rules. You're in the single market. You'd be taking on freedom of movement. You have a very, very, very close relationship to the EU, certainly within the EA, but those constitutional arguments that the Leavers made are gone. Now, what kind of practical difference does that make? Frankly, really very, very little indeed. And for anyone who voted in a sort of normal human way of saying, well, I want to take back control rather than the more sort of elitist, you know, academic arguments, this would probably make no change. But in terms of those guys saying, why should the EU law be superior to British law? This does address those concerns. And in fact, the way that the EFTA court approaches legal issues is in a much more reluctant, detached way than the European uh, Court of Justice. It takes a very strict, a very sort of thin down view of what a law is trying to do. And it tends to prioritize nation states autonomy wherever it can over this. This should be the kind of compromise position, you know, that everyone could agree on. Of course, we've all lost our minds. So it isn't. (laughs) But nevertheless, you strip it down. You look at the the sort of checklist boxes and this Mm. satisfies the concerns that they say they have. It's up to them to say why they would not find it tolerable. Time for a commercial break. 
On Romaniacs, we do our utmost to stave off Brexit depression among our loyal listeners. But you cannot live on politics alone, so may we suggest you check out our sibling podcast, Big Mouth 2. Big Mouth covers music, film, TV books and more. It's the pop culture talk show for intelligent time wasters. There's a new episode of Top Pop Culture Conversation every Saturday morning. And this week they're talking about Catherine Bigelow's electrifying movie Detroit, the new album by British hip-hop talent Ghost Poet and the latest Marvel TV series The Defenders. You can find Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. Have a listen and make a stand against cheap imported Eastern European podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> now, as promised, it's Ask Romaniacs. It was a blockbuster success the last time we did it, so it's back by overwhelming popular demand. You, the listeners, ask the questions. Ian and Naomi answer them, and I nod and say, hmm, yes. <laughs> Firstly, for Ian, this is one of those questions that nobody seems able to answer. Ray Joe H on Twitter asks, is membership of the EU actually any barrier to nationalisation of the trains, energy, or anything else? This was huge with the Lexit campaign, but is it true? Mm, yes and no. This is a really big subject, and I think at some point we're going to do a programme on this. I think it probably won't even be that long. So we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it properly then. Ultimately, no, you can have public ownership in the EU. And in fact, there's an explicit bit of the treaty that says it doesn't, we are not making any comment on the kind of ownership you have. What you do need to do is demonstrate that there isn't a monopoly. So the really crucial part is in provision of public services. And there you can still have public sort of, you know, your own public companies you know, doing this sort of stuff. But you need to demonstrate that there's competition there. There are also restrictions on state aid. And this is all to create an, an equal playing field in the EU. Now, the, the broader argument, the sort of broader left wing one of are you better off in or out, I, I think is, you know, just so unspeakably clear as to really anything. But there are major issues with the way that the EU does some things. There's a couple of cases, Laval and Viking, which I think are particularly pernicious in the way that they do things. All of it's reformable, but there are sort of elements there that you would want changed. However, on the, on the central issue of does it prevent nationalisation, it absolutely does not. As you will see if you, know, you go to Germany or you go to France, where you see there's plenty of nationalised sort of industries and sectors which get along perfectly well with EU rules. Yeah, because this whole Brexit would mean Corbyn unbound is something that I think we're going to have to get to in a, in a later edition, because yeah. it's a meaty one. Naomi, how about this one from Andrew Brooks? If the Brexit vote had been this year, i.e. after Trump's election, would the result have been different? Would, would Britain have been scared straight? This is the biggest what-if political question of the year, for sure. I tend to think it probably would. Uh, on balance, I think I come down on that side. For a few reasons. I think that the EU may have conceded more to Cameron during those negotiations in the face of a Trump who was trying to weaken NATO and things like that. So I think we could have seen him being offered a little bit more to come back to the country with and maybe would have been a bit more acceptable to some of the leavers in his camp. I also think that it would have woken up a lot of Remainers out of complacency. I think a lot of you know reluctant Remainers may have been galvanised into being less reluctant and some that just believed Brexit was never going to happen beyond everyone's wildest dreams. I, I remember really getting angry with people in the Remain campaign because I could see it coming. I, it's why I'd given up my job to sort of campaign full time for Remain uh, in the first six months of last year. And so many people saying, oh, no, you're near me, you're being a cynic, you're being a sceptic. It'll never actually happen. There's only been one referenda in the last however you know, many decades where we voted against 
against the status quo, look at Scotland, etc. Uh, so I tend to think that actually, yeah, it, on balance, we'd have just nicked it. Because it would have changed the strategy, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like so much exactly. of the strategy exactly. was based on it, it would have, the winning It side. would have allowed Cameron to use phrases like, you know, never before has it been so important for us to, you know, deepen our relationship with our near neighbours and friends and, and things like that. I think it, it would have emboldened him to say some things that, that at the time he felt he couldn't say because of trying to keep his own fractious party together. One for both of you. Sergio Tavares asks, what happens if there's a second referendum and voters reject the agreement with the EU27, whatever it might be? Is maintaining the status quo realistic? Many people seem to think so. I don't. I mean, that all depends on how you end up doing it. I mean, you can... This is, this is the crucial question. When we say there's going to be a meaningful vote, whether it's in the Commons or whether it's to the country, there is no meaningful vote if it's no deal or the deal the government comes back with because whatever they come back with is better than no deal. There's literally nothing they could do which, is really, which would be any worse than us just falling out without any regulatory or legal or, or, or sort of trade capacity in order to deal with it. I mean, it would be catastrophic. So that's not meaningful and that's precisely the reason that Theresa May is trying to make sure that that is the option that is presented to the Commons. What we need is something, yes, who would have thought that she would be so, you know, cynical and foolish about the whole thing? And what we need, of course, is a vote that basically says you take the deal or you go back to status quo. Um, And that is a very, very different sort of proposition. And so really, the answer is it depends on what the question is that's put either to the country or to the commons or both. And say that did happen and say that the deal was rejected and it was back to status quo. After all this shenanigans, would the rest of the EU be more or less likely to make concessions? <laughs> very, very much no. <laughs> very unlikely. <yeah. laughs> However, I, you know, when, when we, you know, assuming this happens, if it does happen and we campaign for it, I think that the message has to be remain and reform. It can't be just reversion back to the previous status quo, if only for the campaign reason that status quo is death at the moment. Anyone promoting the status quo fails. But also, there are clearly things that can change in the EU. I was talking about Laval and Viking earlier. We'll talk about this more some other time, but that needs to change. It's also the case that Britain is clearly demonstrating the fact that it wants a more arm's length relationship with Europe. And the more that that could be recognised in the package that you're offering for staying, the better chance I think you'd have of securing that vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mischievous John Elledge of the New Statesman asks, a uh, related issue here, what made former Eurosceptic Ian Dunst see oh, the light? such a dick. <laughs> 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 okay, yeah. Well, I mean, I, the funny thing is, I still consider myself a Eurosceptic. I just don't consider myself a Europhobe. And of all of my problems with the EU, I think they are rather less significant than my problems with being ruled by a bunch of reactionary British fools, which I think is where we are right now. But ultimately, I... There are some places in Remain where sensible conversations are having between Eurosceptics and Remainers about where are the faults with the EU, what are the kind of things we should be aware of. And the fundamental moral question at all times when it comes down to regulatory issues and trade issues, which sound very grey and boring, but are in fact pivotal to the whole way that we do politics, is to what extent do you give up sovereignty and control and power in order to secure other goods by cooperating with others and it's important to have a system where you're constantly thinking we only give up power up to the center rather than localizing it down with considerable reluctance and with an awareness of the gravity of what that entails and it'd be very nice if we heard a little bit more of that within remain circles and and we had a sort of a more moderate mercurial debate about this stuff rather than just running off to our tribes on one side or another and saying the eu is perfect or the eu is the the third right yeah, yeah, no, I think Remain and Reform would be 
uh, the most compelling to, to most people. I mean, there's very few people, I think, even on the Remain side, that if they really dug into it, would not find things they want to change. Of course not. In any system of government, there's, there's things that you want to change. Mm. Yeah, Valorise every aspect of it. And the absurdity as well, of course, of, you know, when people, when people criticise the law in Westminster, they don't say, we've got to get rid of Westminster. You know, I mean, the, the, the idea is, of course, when you're, you're in a particular body, you have disagreements about how things go one way or another. Now, some people say it may not be valid to have any governance at a continental level. That seems to me to be a quite extreme position to hold, given, you know, things we have around climate change or around terrorism or in a more mundane day-to-day world with the benefits that we all get by having free movement of goods and of services and, to me, of people, although I know that that right there quite clearly to be the most important aspect of this whole thing, securing that human right to move wherever the hell you damn well please, I know is the bit that is most against the instincts of the British public and where I think the most work has to be done. And one for all of us here from Isolated Brit, Bowie, Lever or Remainer? This is the guy who wrote, <laughs> he wrote the lyrics, Rule Britannia is out of bounds in Life on Mars, and he twice turned down a Queen's honour. This is not someone who harked back to an era of empire. And Absolute staunch Remainer. And who would think he was? He is, he's up in heaven. This seems like he's the most Remain rock star. I mean, he literally yeah. he moved to Berlin put out a tune called A New Career in a New Town, which is pretty much the freedom of movement anthem. <laughs> like, I don't think you could find anything in his catalogue. Whereas, like, you know, Roger Daltrey, proper leave. That frock coat on the drum and bass album, though. <laughs> oh. But that was a late 90s Union Jack, kind of Damien Hursty. You know, our Britpop, Post Noel, Jerry Halliwell, Union, you know. And also drum and bass. He's obviously a Remainer. I don't see... This is not a question. It's yeah. not even a question. <laughs> Sorry, it's like, it's like water, dry or wet. Like, <laughs> but uh, if there are any more... Uh, if there are any sort of grey area rock stars that you would like us to frisk for their leave or remain credentials, do, do send them in. We'll do some more Ask Remaniacs in a few weeks' time, so keep an eye on our Twitter, at RemaniacsCast, for exciting announcements. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Naomi Smith for joining us again. What's your next move in the battle against Brexit, Naomi? Well, I haven't given up on the 52%, so perhaps I'm going to spend a bit more time trying to sort of hug them a bit more closely and win them over to our way of thinking. Um, it's either that or I'm going to, you know, go and move to Canada and try and get close to the lovely Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Good plan. Come back again anytime. And thanks, as always, to Ian Dunt. Thank you. Remember, you can hear this podcast and all of our back catalogue at audioboom.com slash channel slash Romaniacs dash podcast. And you can find links to all the places you can hear the show at Romaniacs.com. As is traditional, we're going to end with a reason to be cheerful. Naomi, it's your turn. What do you got? Last week, um, Opinium did a poll showing that one in four Leave voters feels that they were duped by the Leave campaign and a significant number of them would now change the way they vote. And it appears that maybe one of those people might be Peter Hitchens himself, who this week wrote a column saying why we should consider joining EFTA. So do you know what? These people, they they could be for turning. And that really is the end of the show. To sign off, here's listener Caroline Will in Holland. Liam Fox is so dumb, he can't shit and kauwgum kauwgum at the same moment. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. (laughs) 